Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence at cmlibrary.org. Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to the written words. We're a proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network and the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, a series of author-hosted podcasts uh, distributing literary content to a worldwide audience. I'm your host, Landis Wade, a recovering trial lawyer turned author turned podcaster of books and stories, and I really appreciate you being here. Very quickly, before we get to the uninterrupted interview today, a few quick words about some of the benefits uh, for our listeners. Number one, we have show notes uh, for every episode uh, with images, links, and information about our authors at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And number two, if you're into audiobooks, uh, we have a relationship with Libro.fm, which supports indie bookstores. If you sign up with Libro to get your audiobooks and use the promo code CHARLOTTEREADER, you'll get an extra audiobook free. Number three, if you go to charlottereaderspodcast.com or my personal website, landisway.com, and you sign up for the book report, you're going to get it every other Tuesday. And here's what you'll get. Recommended readings, author interviews and videos, reading and writing tips, doses of inspiration, a free ebook by yours truly, and more. We won't spam you. That takes way too much time. And finally, we've got a lot of great content that we put out on our exclusive Patreon channel. If you like what we do here, uh, that is our mission of helping authors give voice to their written words, and you'd like to help us uh, defray the costs of this project, you can jump over to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast, and you can tap into all the great extra content we've got that's curated by our authors and me about uh, their writing lives and the craft and business of writing and other things too. But enough with the prologue. Let's get to the uninterrupted story of our guest and the one they've written. In today's episode, we visit with Bonet Bartron, noted filmmaker and author of Whispers, number one best-selling debut novel in Amazon's new release charts and sociology of abuse, a spine-tingling political thriller full of dark twists, political conspiracies, and legends that predate the American Constitution. During a trip to Disney World with her two sisters, Stacey Cooper's eight-year-old niece goes missing. After finding a clue that points to an urban legend, the sisters embroil themselves in an investigation that spans centuries. Scott Harnett called Whispers a fast-paced, well-thought-out journey that is gripping and keeps you guessing from the first page to the last. Bartron has created a trio of strong lead characters and a plot that is full of twists and turns. With themes that range from political and social corruption, corporate media monopolies, and racial inequity, Whispers is an entertaining and intelligent read. Bonet, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Landis. And I love the way you uh, <laughs> distilled whispers. It's one of my favorite ways I've ever heard it distilled. So thank oh, you. great, great. Well, <laughs> glad well congratulations on, on whispers. Thank you so much. Yeah. Um, let's talk just a minute about how you came to write this book. You told me that you had crafted whispers uh, as a conversation with a group of people who, who were feeling isolated while framing it as a heart-pounding mystery, tell us mo- tell us more. <laughs> well, so I I really am a believer in fiction. I think that fiction has 
the ability to explain things that, you know, just saying the cold, hard facts sometimes turns people off. But when we have something that's fictionalized, it gives us an opportunity to see through somebody else's eyes without judging ourselves or judging the person that we're, we're with. So Whispers was really something that I, I've lived all over this country. I know people from all over this country and all over the world, really. And fundamentally, we are all the same. So seeing this big divide in our country, this like rift, this like widening rift in our country, it struck me that there was something else happening. Like this isn't something that naturally occurs among people. There was something else happening and it was something that felt deliberate to me, especially with the timeline. So that was really what kind of inspired Whispers. Yes, I was talking to a few of my friends about just some of the things that, you know, we were experiencing here in Los Angeles, um, the fear that everybody was just embroiled in, even though like, you know, walking down the street, it, it wasn't chaos and hellfires, but it felt like it was because of the way that we were getting our news, especially being isolated in our houses and stuff. And so usually I would write a movie because <laughs> that's what I do, you know? Um, but I had no idea when the film industry was going to come back online. And I felt like if I was going to say anything about what was happening, it needed to happen right now. I yeah, couldn't gonna, wait. Yeah. We're going to dive into how you sort of did that a little bit later, but, uh, talk a little bit about your past. You are checking in from LA and, uh, you, uh, grew up in a military family. You've lived all over. Uh, you got uh, degrees in English and psychology, which I suppose helps when you're writing something of this type. Uh, I actually you, uh, dropped out of college. Uh, okay. Say. My yeah. senior year, I dropped out. So the, do the, not have degrees in English the, and the, psychology. The, the secrets to all success, right? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, but in 2017, you had a, you were a writer on a feature film um, entitled Unbridled. Uh, which opened in theaters across the U.S. And, you know, the reason I'm asking you about this is because I looked that up and I, I was interested to see that uh, involved a 17-year-old who had the shame of being a victim and prisoner of a human sex trafficking campaign sort of tolerated by her mother and and run by her boyfriend. And, you know, that gets into the whole abduction thing. And you've got, in Whispers, you've got an abduction. Um, I'm wondering what draws you to this idea of abduction and holding young girls against their will. Is it, uh, are you trying to shine a light on something or is this something talk about that a second? That's a really great question. And to be honest, like it's not something I've pondered. Um, Unbridled was actually brought to me. Uh, I was asked to write that movie by the producers. So, um, and the reason that I did sign on to that movie was because it was based on a true story, like a real place. And so I was really interested in helping those people tell their story more than anything else. That's, that's why I did Unbridled. For Whispers, um, it's interesting because you're right. Again, we do have that abduction thing, and I even have a movie called Abducted. So, like, <laughs> the, tri the trifecta. <laughs> you know, the movie, of course, is more about um, alien abductions than it is actual right. human abductions. But, hey, when we're yeah. talking about it, right? Um, yeah. But no, I mean, that's a really good question. I think that there is a feeling of powerlessness that every woman, especially in this country, I think most every person can feel it. But I know that every woman at some point in our lives has felt 
like we were not in control of our own destiny. And so I do think that there is some kind of need inside of me to encourage us to become our own destiny, including encouraging myself to become my own destiny. And um, I think the idea of somebody kidnapping somebody close to us or taking, uh, you know, one of us, um, I think that is something that is so universal in a way that shouldn't be. And that's probably why it's a recurring theme for me, if I have to guess. Yeah, well, um, you know, I mentioned in the opening that your book was a number one best-selling debut novel ranking in Amazon's new release charts in sociology of abuse. And first of all, I didn't even know they had a category for sociology of abuse, but what right. is that What is that exactly? I think I kind of have an intuitive feel for it, but uh, I want you to talk about that and also how you even knew to find that ranking. <laughs> Such a good question. Dang, Landis. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So um, Ronan Farrow wrote a book called Catch and Kill. And Catch and Kill is kind of the true version of Whispers in a lot of ways. It's the true life version of it. And Ronan did such a brilliant job. But because it was so hard hitting, I don't think that it reached a lot of the people that really could have benefited from the information that he dug up. Um, and he had classified his book in sociology of abuse. So I did a little bit of poking around um, inside of the genre itself. And to be frank, like this book is a satire. It's a thriller and mystery. And it's in sociology of abuse. So um, that that was just kind of one of those things where I was like, oh, I want to I put it with Ronin's because I feel like these two kind of go together. And then they also have like a child called It on there and these other ideas of um, just the way that psychology or that socially that as a like people that we um, not only process abuse, but how it becomes part of the fabric of our country when we ignore it. And so that was something that I thought was really resonant and it ended up resonating with that audience pretty well. So I'm grateful about that. That's great. Well, you're right. Uh, you can list it in more than one category and uh, it can shoot up up to the top and any one that it does is a perfect result. Uh, and I guess that, you know, for, there are some uh, writers out there going to be listening to this podcast and they're probably thinking, God, how'd she get to the top debut novel? So there probably was some work that went involved into uh, preparing to launch this book, I'm guessing. Right. So, I mean, to be completely honest with you, um, I put this book out in a hurry. And, um, I, I started writing it in May and then I had it, you know, the first draft in August. And then I was working with editors like round the clock to get it ready. Mm -hmm. Um, and I actually didn't really start promoting it until about four or five days before we launched. Um, and it was because I didn't know how long it was going to actually take. In fact, KDP published it like three days earlier than it was supposed to be. And I was like, what are you doing to me? This is not the day that we publicized, you know? Um, But that was because I didn't realize you had to have a 72 hour window. That was a clear 72 hour window or you couldn't pick your publishing date. It was just whenever it cleared. So that Mm -hmm. was, that was that. But when it came to actually promoting the book, um, you know, my, my boyfriend and I both have an online business. Um, where he is a he he paints miniatures for this game called 40k he's also a very well-known player of the game and then of course like I'm a screenwriter and a director 
and I make silly videos on TikTok sometimes. <laughs> and so really we, we, you know, called out to our fans and asked them to help spread the word. And I'm sure that was a major contributing factor that our fans just like rallied behind us so hard, our fans and our friends and our family, you know, rallied behind us so hard. Um, and quite frankly, I also feel like and this might seem a little bit like woo woo, but I do feel like the universe really um, like hooked, hooked this whole thing up, like guided me through it from the beginning. I felt like the book was meant to be written and I just was lucky enough that it was, you know, the ball landed on my color this time. You know, it was, it just happened to be that I was the one gifted this book. And so I do feel like there was a little bit of kismet and I, I know that it's got to be super frustrating for people because I do know a lot of really wonderful authors who have put out a number of books and have had very little success in, you know, even in, even in major publishing, um, because it is such a competitive world. So I think it was just kind of the, the perfect, you know, the perfect storm. Like I can't take too much credit for it. And I also can't say that I didn't do anything for it. Cause you know, I definitely know our social media had something for it. Um, and I would would want to definitely encourage people to, you know, build their social medias up and stuff. But even if you do, if you don't get really successful in the first one, don't give up. This was an anomaly. <laughs> so, Benet, that's great advice because any author who's going to publish a book either has to have some preparation up front or they've got to have uh, a, a nice social platform or whatever to kind of publish it. But as you said, don't get discouraged because... You can always write another book. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. And I mean, there are definitely stories I've heard of people who've had books out for 10 years before they actually caught on. So, hmm. you know, and I mean, the act of writing is definitely its own reward, which I know sounds like really like, well, that's easy to say when, but it really is. I've written a number of screenplays that have never seen the light of day, at least not yet. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to have you do a little reading in just a minute, uh, the inciting incident from the book. But before we do that, just a little bit about the uh, book cover and the, uh, and the, and the title. I, I like to talk to authors. I really was drawn into your, to your cover uh, and your title. Um, Thank you. Uh, let's talk about it for our listeners. They, they, they can't see it, of course, but they can see it at charlerispodcast.com, the website and the show notes and with links to your uh, website as well. But it looks uh, kind of like a dark shadows kind of cover here. <laughs> thank you hey i'll take that <laughs> yeah. um well the place is actually a place in colorado um called the briarhurst manor and i grew up in colorado it was one of the many places that my dad was stationed but it was the one that felt like the most home we spent the most time there and a good friend from high school actually reached out to me and asked me if she could shoot the cover for my book now to be frank with you, I was like, well, I don't know, lady. Like, I haven't talked to you in 10 years, you know? And she's like, listen, if you don't use it, it's totally fine. I just really would love the opportunity to, like, support you in some way. And I was so touched by that. I was like, okay. So I went ahead and hired a local professional photographer to back her up. Um, and then she ended up going and, like, she was the one who secured the Briarhurst. Like, she's just a little boss. That's all I can say. This lady, like, lined it all up. And then she ended up being the actual photographer of the cover picture. The photographer I hired was wonderful, but she did not capture the image that I needed. But 
Kara did, and this was the one shot that she took, and it ended up being our cover image. <laughs> yeah, so so it's like you're standing in a, in a great room in a, in a mansion, but you're looking back out toward the the front of the house, and doors are open, and and there are red slippers sitting in the foyer as if someone has left them behind, and in the very distance, it looks like a shadowed man is holding the arm of a young child. Yeah. Yes as they're walking away and she's barefoot. Exactly. Yeah. Might that be, might that be Mr. Tasty Treats? Yeah. That definitely might just be Mr. Tasty Treats right there. Well, that that's uh, talk about the title whispers. Um, uh, Did it come to you right away? Did it come to you later? And what do you hope to evoke with that, with that title? Well, ironically, I was going to call the book rage. Um, because when I first started writing it, it was just about how much anger I was seeing from so many different sides and so many people didn't even know why they were mad. They were just furious. Right. So originally I was going to call it rage. And then about halfway through the book, I realized that the book was called whispers. Like I didn't have much of a choice on it. It was like, Hey, dummy, (laughs) remember when you were going to say rage. And then again, ironically, as soon as I had finished this, that's whenever Bob Woodward's book came out, Rage. And I mean, though there have been other books with whispers in the title, I feel like that could have been a problem. <laughs> well, either title. that or you could have gotten a whole lot of downloads by accident, you know? I mean, you know, that's a good point. Could do that old Hollywood trick of doing the same name game. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, let's do this. We've got a, uh, we're going to have a little reading. Authors uh, give voice to the written words on Charlotte Rue's podcast. And, uh, we're going to have you read from the beginning of the book, the, sort of the inciting incident, uh, a couple of pages, and uh, uh, it's from the prologue, actually. And uh, whenever you're ready, just take it away. Wonderful. Thank you, Landis. The prologue. If the Talbot colonial family home were to be cut in half, it would resemble a wormy apple. Abnormally large rooms with luxury surroundings and accents of old money work hard to obscure the places where the gleaming network of brass tubes reach beyond the obscurity of wooden walls. The metal veins that connect every room are there for the convenience of the important family and to ensure Mr. and Miss Talbot never have to see the help unless they want to, which they rarely do. Lucianne Talbot, a fairy of a human being, just five years old, quietly pads down the darkened hallway into the overstocked family library. Stepping into the moonlit painted room, she swiftly crosses to the wall opposite the gilded bay window and built-in reading nook. On her tippiest of toes, she runs her little hand along the smooth wallpaper until she feels what she is looking for. She pushes her tiny footstool from its position in front of her similarly sized reading chair, flush with the wall, aiding her reach. Lucy digs her little fingers into the grooves around an ornate piece of molding. It is almost imperceivable from the rest of the hand-carved sculpture spanning the room at the halfway point in the wall. Lucianne pulls until her fingernails turn white, And finally, the piece gives way, nearly toppling her as it opens on its hinge. Lucianne smiles with anticipation, bringing her little mouth to the hole and whispers, Jeffrey, ollie ollie oxen free! Her voice vibrates the ingenious metal contraption and races through the house along the network of talking tubes. Lucianne puts her ear to the hole and waits. Another voice, this one a little older and male, returns. Are you in the library? Lucianne giggles. (laughs) How did you know on the first guess? Did you leave the kitchen? Jeffrey responds, I don't cheat. I could tell you weren't in the attic because I couldn't hear the wind and you always pick one or the other. It's my turn now, so be quiet. If Nan wakes up, mom's gonna know too. 
Lucienne speaks into the tube. Okay, I'll wait right here and I'll whisper. Her voice softens as she speaks the last word. Lucy sits down on the little footstool and swings her legs, eagerly waiting for her turn to guess which intercom tube her brother will call her from next. A moment later, a clownish falsetto, a moment later, a clownish falsetto faintly asks, Hello? Are you still there? Lucy is confused, but she stands up and puts her ear to the hole in the wall again, then turns to speak into it. Jeffrey, you're supposed to say ollie ollie oxen free. The exaggerated childish voice responds, You said it for me. Lucy becomes unsure and timidly whispers into the speaking tube. Why do you sound like that? Don't you like it? I'm being silly. Lucy smiles. Oh, okay. Do I get a guess now? The falsetto responds. Yes, guess. Lucy thinks really hard, gripping the sides of the hole with excitement and tries to keep her voice down. Are you in the kitchen still? The high-pitched voice pauses, then responds. Yes, come meet me here. I have a treat for you. Lucy grins. Is it a strawberry? The voice responds. You'll have to come see. Lucy runs from the room, not even bothering to replace her pedestal or close the intercom. A few moments later, Jeffrey's fingers reveal another speaking tube in the pantry bathed in flickering candlelight. He puts his mouth to the tube and giggles. Ollie, ollie, oxen free, Lucy Ann. A full beat passes before Jeffrey decides to try again. Lucy, ollie, ollie, oxen free. This time, another voice answers, a gruff woman's tenor crackling with sleep and irritation. I swear to the Lord himself, Jeffrey, you and your sister better be in bed when I come up to check on you. Jeffrey's eyes widen and betray his 11 years in a moment. Nan, uh, uh, we're in bed. The boy blows out his candle and races from the pantry back up the long, polished hallway. Bits of hot wax dribble on the marble floor. The kitchen is in darkness as Nan opens the door and walks across the rich boards to where the tile surrounds a large wood-burning stove and a clean stack of logs beside it. Nan glares as she looks around and doesn't see anything of note. She wipes her eyes, walking with purpose down the long hallway and up the stairs to Jeffrey's open door. He's in bed, his back to Nan. Mm-hmm. Good night, Jeffrey. We'll talk about this in the morning. Jeffrey twitches and snores audibly, but looks back at Nan, who catches him with an accusing purse of her lips. Jeffrey rolls back over, resigned to the knowledge he's been caught. Nan continues down the hallway to Lucianne's room, where the door is ajar. Nan pauses outside and shakes her head, opening the door to reveal an empty room fit for a princess. Nan stalks back into Jeffrey's room. Jeffrey, where is your sister? From down the hall, a hair-whitening scream echoes, its pitch like struck crystal, a warning of innocence dissolving, terror replacing its fleeting memory. Okay, great exciting incident there. <laughs> sounds, yeah. sounds uh, and, and you know this probably from being a screenwriter, that it's important to grab the attention of the audience early on. And that's what you were certainly doing in this book. Um, and just to set the stage a little bit, you know, this, this happens, uh, the setting is Disney world, right? You're in Orlando when this, right. when the subduction takes place. So they're kind of, uh, out there, um, supposedly to have a good time. And then this thing happens and we find out that the, uh, the only clues left behind point to an urban legend that predates, uh, uh, the American Constitution, a fiend of a name, uh, Mr. Tasty Treats. <laughs> exactly. So, so where in the 
holy world of screenwriting and book writing did that name come from? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So it was funny. I actually, I came up with a list of ideas for the creature's name, but I wanted something that was easily dismissed, something that felt childish because Mr. Tasty Treats is a very real threat and only the children are aware of him. Um, and nobody believes them. And his name is part of the reason nobody believes them because it just seems so fake and childish and silly. And so it was funny because I had a few names that I was like, oh, that's such an epic name. I'm going to have to use this in another thing, <laughs> you know? But Mr. Tasty Treats, I just felt like had the air of almost an adult trying to create something childish. And that's what I really wanted for him. Well, let's talk a little bit about the characters and some of the themes here. We've got Stacy Cooper. She's a contract lawyer. Um, Stacy's sister-in-law uh, is married to uh, Stacy's brother. She is a black woman who Stacy considers a blood relative. So you work the biracial angle in here with, with the children um, and Stacy, you know, believing she's almost like a blood relative to, to her black sister-in-law. Um, then we got the kids and we've got, uh, you know, husbands and what have you. And then of course, Mr. Tasty treats, but um, some of the themes you're dealing with, it's almost like um, you were voicing some, uh, and maybe this goes back to the anger, but some, some concerns that were in, in your heart. <laughs> And in your in your mind throughout here, because you you address racism, politics, and conspiracy theories. So, how did this abduction then end up along those paths? Well, so that was really the big discovery that I made last year, or this year, I should say, at the beginning of this year. Um, there is a conspiracy theory that has been spread in America, um, and that conspiracy theory feels insane if you look at it from the outside. But if you are slowly warmed up to it, it's insidiously perfect to just like pull at the, the parts of us that doubt um, the world we're in anyway. And I think every thinking human doubts everything that we see on some level, you know, the veracity of the reality that we're in. Not all the time, hopefully, but from time to time has like those moments and that, is what is so scary about um, some conspiracy theories is that they play on this um, logic and then they take this huge leap away from it. And so I think that um, with like the politics and the, the racial things, my family actually, like my, my nieces are black and my sister-in-law is black. And I have personally made some of those mistakes before that I, um, you know, I put in for Stacy, some things that I thought I was being helpful that I wasn't. And I feel like there are a lot of us, um, in the United States, a lot of, you know, people, uh, who want to stand up for, like, I, I know there's a lot of men who want to stand up for women, especially right now. I know there's a lot of, um, white people who want to show that, you know, we are in solidarity with our black and Latino and Asian and all of the races that are in America, this great melting pot that is our country. Like, I think there is a lot of need for that right now. Um, and so I figured, you know, it's embarrassing to admit that I've made 
so many mistakes in my life, especially with my family being the way that it is, you know, but if someone who has, um, you know, people of a different race in their family can make these kinds of mistakes, then we all can. And it's really about acknowledging it and being better, you know, and that's kind of what I'm hoping with what, um, what I had Stacy really talk about in those, those ways when it comes to religion, politics, and race and gender. Well, I'm going to be careful not to give away too much about the conspiracy because I don't want to create any spoilers by accident here. <laughs> I appreciate it. It's hard, right? I know it's hard to talk about it without uh, giving something away. So I'm going to be, be careful not to do that. But let me, let me talk about our strong character, Stacy. Minute. There's a quote uh, about eight, page eighty, some in the book, it says there is a light in my blood. It brightens whenever I realize I'm not helpless in a situation. I don't know if I can fully describe it, but it's like a memory of who I was born to be. And she goes on to say, when I know I'm in charge of a situation, there's something that clicks. It feels right, like I'm masterminding a symbiotic machine. And so, are you speaking uh, a little uh, memoirish here about this character? <laughs> <laughs> you know, there are definitely quite a few moments in the book that I would say are 100% undistilled Bonet, whether it's on Ego 10 or Ego 3. <laughs> like, there are definitely some moments. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm a director, you know, that's definitely one thing that I, I just love is seeing a bunch of people come together for a single cause, for a common cause, and being able to help people achieve the highest level of their art is the entire reason that I have worked so hard my entire career to be where I am as a director is to be able to help those people get there. And there is a light in my blood <laughs> and it does shine when I'm in control. So, so you, met, you mentioned director, we'll kind of slide into our writing life segment here, but, but let me ask about being a director. We don't have too many of those on the show, but uh, how has it been for you and you know, the pandemic uh, both in terms of screenwriting and directing. Are there things still going on behind the scenes? Are you doing things virtually? I know that we're not acting as much because when I contracted with my narrator, who was an actor to do my you know, Christmas books, he had time on his hands because there weren't, you know, filming as much. So what's, what's been going on? So um, I actually had two films slated to shoot this year. And uh, the first one was supposed to begin uh, pre in April. And then we were going to be shooting May, May, June. And, um, that obviously didn't happen. And after the first one didn't happen, we were like, that's okay. We're going to end up shooting the sinking city, which is the fall film. We're going to just start, you know, focusing on that. We'll start prepping that. So we started switching gears to the sinking city and it became evident pretty quickly that, um, it was very unlikely that it was going to be able to happen, especially because of insurance and whatnot. So there are definitely things happening. Um, I do have I've actually had a few calls offering me work during the pandemic, which I'm very grateful for. Um, there's not enough work to go around. Um, but, you know, it's it's interesting because I think that this pandemic has shown us um, that no matter what, we will figure out a way to make things happen. And so that was kind of the situation with me with the book is, it was a very big loss for me to not have those movies. Um, they were some, both of them were ones that I had, you know, years into. Um, and so many meetings and so many, you know, so much work. Um, 
but when they didn't happen, I honestly didn't feel, um, I, I just felt like, okay, I guess it's time to reevaluate for right now. Like I am fortunate enough to have a roof over my head and food in my belly. I'm not going to complain about getting pushed back a year, whatever, you know? Um, and, and think about it this way, but if, if this hadn't happened, we wouldn't be talking about this book right now, probably because you wouldn't have had time to write it. You are absolutely right. Landis. And I will say that this has really ignited um, a love for writing books. I, I actually have another one that I'm already outlining. But my boyfriend's yeah. like, can you just stop for a second? Can you just stop? <laughs> That's great. Well, well real quick, um, we, we, I want to ask you this question. Um, you know, being a screenwriter, I'm sure that involves a lot of uh, – focus on dialogue and everything. So that probably helped you with writing the novel. But what, what were some of the things that uh, maybe you had to unteach yourself as, you know, from your screenwriting to, to, to make it into a novel and talk about the things that also benefited you from having that foundation? That is such, again, great, great questions, Landis. All of them. So good. Um, so really, the difference between writing a book and a screenplay, not only is the page number, because like the page count was definitely a big, just mental hurdle for me to get over, because I'm so used to telling a story in 110 or less pages, preferably 90, you know, <laughs> around there, um, which is a really concise film. And to be frank with you, you don't want extra pages in the film. Those are extra minutes. Um, so I am a very economical, uh, economical writer when it comes to words. Um, and it was funny because the first scene that I wrote the, was the prologue, ironically. Um, the first scene that I wrote, I read it and I was like, oh, this reads like the opening of a movie. <laughs> this, doesn't, this doesn't read like a book, Bonet. And so I went back and I was like, all right, let's describe the house more than interior house day, you know? <laughs> right. So, yeah. That's um, good. And, and you bring that up because I did talk to, I did have um, a screenwriter on once and he talked about that, that 90 to hundred pages. And the reason at first I didn't understand why. And then I thought, well, in a movie, there's a lot of action going on and a lot of filming of areas and sights and sounds and people thinking and not talking. And you don't need anything on the page for that other than a direction of where they're going to point the camera. Right. That's very, yeah, that's very true. It's interesting though, because in a screenplay, there's a lot of like winks to actors, right? There's a lot of like winks to camera, but you don't, you don't necessarily want to say camera moves unless you're also directing it, but there are winks to the camera. If, you know, we're following somebody, camera's going to understand that this is, you know, a moving shot, et cetera. Um, so those are also things that were interesting to me because I am so used to visually showing people things that I was like, cool, cool, cool no wink to camera because there is no camera. I get to write this from a perspective of where we have to make people see the camera in their head. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And the camera can move, move among different heads, different characters and that kind of right. thing. Hey, so uh, listeners, um, we're talking about the book Whispers with uh, Benet Bartron and uh, you're in for a treat because she and I are going to jump over in just a second to our Patreon channel. Uh, and that's where you can help us uh, with the mission of the podcast for a few dollars a month. Uh, Get extra content. It's patreon.com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast. And we're going to be talking about this very thing in more detail. And that is the difference between writing uh, screenplays and, and books and also a little bit about marketing, too, that relates to, to books. So uh, if, you, if you're interested in that, you can hop over and pick that up uh, 
that's uh, as I said, the Patreon page. And thank you for being a supporter for that. Um, but 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 hey, just to finish up here, um, it sounds like you were on kind of a whirlwind to get this thing done. Now that it's done, now that you've launched it, now that we've actually got a vaccine, and you know we might see the end of the tunnel here. Uh, yeah. Hallelujah. Uh, so, <clears throat> what do you want readers to get out of this book? And uh, are you proud of what you're able to put together here? Um. Whew. That's heavy. <laughs> Just slip that in there, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I definitely am grateful for the book, and I am proud of the book in the way that I, I feel like I said what I needed to say. I, I feel like all of what's happening in the world right now is calling on our voices, and you know whether it's one person that you reach or. 10,000 or 10 million, it doesn't matter. Um, it's about showing up and being that voice then. Um, so I put it out when I did because I really felt like it needed to be out in the world as quickly as possible. But now I feel like it's actually more relevant than it was even before, you know, all of <laughs> the new things that have happened since the book has been published since October. Um, it's even more relevant now because we are seeing a shift in our country in a way that we have to figure out a way to get to a better place as a, a people. Like we can't go back to where we were because where we were, we were just hiding a lot of darkness. Um, and that's what I think we've learned more than anything else. And especially the last year. Um, so now I think it's time for us all to confront our darkness. And if you can do it in a fun way, um, you know, that's, that's where I come in. That's like, that's my goal in life is, you know, let me, let me show you something fun. And if you take something away from it, all the better. And if all you take away from it is a fun, scary story, then, Hey, that's, that's cool too. <laughs> that's, that's fun. And listeners, we're going to have a link, uh, to, uh, the website that she's got for, uh, Whispers, you can, you can find that in the show notes at com, And you'll like this because there's wavy uh, apparitions on the side. I, that really drew me in when I saw it. Thank you. That. When you mentioned that, I was like, note to self, make sure yeah. they stay wavy. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, well, look, uh, Benet, thanks so much for this and uh, for being a part of Charlotte Rear's podcast. Thank you so much for having me on, Landis. This is great. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. You can subscribe to this podcast for free at Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and most any podcast platform you like to listen to your podcast on. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice, because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com.